Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. If you're watching online, thanks for joining us as well. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you receive the handout on your way in here. We printed the passage for you so that you can follow along with us. Now, today we're going to continue in a series that I started a few weeks back on a little talk that Jesus gave that has had an enormous impact throughout history. But before we go to the passage we're going to look at today, I just need to give you a little update and um, kind of tell you a little bit about my, my week. This past week, I had the opportunity to go to Oklahoma City um, to visit a church and be part of a, a church leadership experience there. Uh, but to get to Oklahoma City, we flew into um, Fort Worth, Texas, and then we drove to Oklahoma City. Now, I've never been to either one of those states, and so it was a new experience for me. And you may recall this or know this from your experience through traveling, that when you're driving from one place to another and you're going through town after town or city after city, oftentimes what you'll see is welcome signs to that particular city or town. It says, you know, welcome to the city. And then oftentimes they'll have a slogan or a statement about the town. Sometimes they'll list the population number. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Now, um, there's a sign um, in a little place called Ridgefield, Washington, not far from where I used to live, and this is the welcome sign for their town. It says this, welcome to Ridgefield, the birthplace of U-Haul. Cool. I didn't know where U-Haul was born, did you? Well, now you do. Ridgefield, Washington is where U-Haul was born. It changes your life, doesn't it? You just want to race right out and go visit Ridgefield, Washington. Maybe not. Uh, But that's what's on their sign as you enter into Ridgefield, Washington. Now, um, as you are driving through Wenatchee or into Wenatchee, what is the sign there? What's their statement along with their welcome sign? Does anybody know? Apples. I heard it. Apples. Okay. Welcome to Wenatchee, um, the apple capital of the world. Now, that's pretty cool. I love apples, so this is way cooler than U-Haul to me. I, you know, that's, that's kind of fun, but that's what they're known for. That's what they're proud of. This is it. Now, I have never been to Yakima, not yet been to Yakima, but I have heard, just recently heard, in fact, that they have a welcome sign as well, and they have something that they're known for or want to be known for as well. Who, who can tell me what that is? Oh, wow, the Palm Springs, that's right. So they have a welcome sign that says, Welcome to Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington. This is so exciting. My vacation can be planned now. I can't wait to go to the Palm Springs of Washington. This is going to be so great. So um, I have not been, but I'm looking forward to being um, and visiting the Palm Springs of Washington at Yakima. So that's the Yakima sign. Now, there's lots of different signs, lots of different cities. One of my favorites, though, is Stanton, Texas. This is their welcome sign at Stanton. Welcome to Stanton, home of 3,000 friendly people and a few old soreheads. <laughs> And I checked, that sign is still there, by the way. It looks old, but it is still there. This is the sign that welcomes you to their town. Now, I think it's funny because, you know, that's 3,000 friendly people, but there's a few old soreheads. And the reality is, it is hard to get away from a few old soreheads, isn't it? <laughs> it just happens. They're kind of, you know, whether it's in your family, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, there's always a few old soreheads. They're just honest enough to say it. 
And um, that's just kind of the, the reality. And it's interesting because all it takes is a few old sore heads to kind of um, have, they have sort of a disproportionate power, don't they? It only takes a few to kind of like make things tough circumstances in whatever circumstance they might be in. But they're just honest about it here in Stanton. And, the, and it's kind of funny at the same time. Now, in Jesus' day, there were some old sore heads. And there's nothing worse, in fact, uh, in terms of old sore heads than a religious old sore head. Who were the religious old sore heads in Jesus' day? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious old sore heads. Now, what are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were people who um, took God super seriously and at the same time took themselves so seriously um, that they would, what they would end up doing is putting themselves sort of in a, a place of prominence and everyone else around them would feel guilty and bad. They were very focused on following rules and regulations. And in the process of being so focused on following rules and regulations, they forfeited a real authentic faith relationship with Jesus Christ. They were so concerned about what they're doing, what they're not doing, what you're doing, what you're not doing, what you're not doing, that they forfeited what it means to be in a real faith walk relationship with God, and they forfeited the opportunity to have a real positive impact in the lives of the people around them. So Jesus had his, his strongest words, his harshest words against the Pharisees, the religious old soreheads. Now, the challenge with that is, because Jesus had such strong words against the Pharisees and their orientation, their values, their views on things, um, what could uh, be interpreted for some people is that, well, maybe he's against the law of God because the Pharisees were very serious about the law of God. They wanted to follow all the laws and all the rituals. They had all the do's and don'ts lined up. And so as Jesus spoke against them, some people could interpret that as, well, maybe he's against God's word. Maybe he's against the law and the prophets. And so Jesus takes a moment to address that. And he takes a moment to address the fact that he is not um, against God's word. Now, he stands above it, but he doesn't, he's not against it. And in fact, he's very much for it. And so he makes, wants to make that very clear. And in the passage we're going to look at today, he makes it very clear the place and prominence that God words, God's word needs to have in our life. Not just a list of rules and regulations, but a living word that's to transform us from the inside out. That's what Jesus wants us to see. That God's word does stand with authority and we're to respond to it with our whole life, wholeheartedly, not just externally. And it's a very challenging passage, but it's going to be very helpful for us as well. So I want to invite you to look at the passage with us. And once you find the passage in your Bible or in that handout, please stand and we'll read the passage together and we'll come back and look at it verse by verse. But let's stand together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said, uh, heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. This passage begins in verse 17 with this statement. It says this, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So I told you there was that speculation. Well, if he's against the Pharisees, is he against the law and the prophets? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not against it. I'm not I'm, uh, against an abolishing that. And when he says the law and the prophets, what he's referring to is what we now call the Old Testament. So the law is the law of Moses, the prophets, the, the, the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's, it's the common way of saying it back then, but today we call it our Old Testament. This was the Bible of Jesus' day. And so he is saying, I am not here to abolish it. Now, Jesus at times will stand above it, right? He'll talk that way, but he doesn't stand against it. And in fact, he wants us to understand how important it is. I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. You may be asking the question, well, how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, first of all, he fulfilled it by following the commands of the, of the, the law, but he also fulfills all the prophecies uh, according about the coming Messiah, the Savior who is to come. All of those prophecies are then um, fulfilled and, and sourced in Jesus and who he is. So he's fulfilled all those prophecies of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. And then most importantly, he fulfills the promise of the Old Testament that now through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we are able to enter into a right, right relationship with God. So he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. And then in the next verse, he says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The words, for truly I tell you. Jesus is saying this emphatically. This, everything that follows that statement, for truly I tell you, is bold-faced type print. He's saying, this is, this is the truth. In the old King James, it was, verily, verily, I say unto thee. That's how it was stated. Now, we don't talk like that anymore, but the same concept is this. In our day, we say, let me tell you the truth. And you'll talk to you know, young people and they'll say, I'm not going to lie. And when they say that, they're setting you up for, I'm going to give you the raw truth. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you the real truth. The real truth is this. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So he's saying, God, he's elevating the word of God. He's saying nothing is, is every, every part of it 
is what we need to respond to. It is our ultimate authority. And so he is not against it. He's for it. He's elevating it. Then he goes on to say, talk about how important it is. Therefore, um, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So again, he's not abolishing it. He's elevating it. But then he's saying, then listen, if anyone tries to set it aside, they will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word setting aside really is, is the same word, word in Greek for to loosen up. And this is important, this idea of loosening up, because many people um, don't, wanna, don't step forward saying, well, I'm just going to dismiss God's word. I'm going to set it aside. We don't think that way or say that. But what we end up doing is loosening up, loosening it up. We come across a command in Scripture that we don't like as much. Or it makes us feel uncomfortable, so we kind of want to loosen it. We say, well, it's not that important. Or mm, it's not that big a deal. We can kind of loosen things up. And so what we do is loosen things up, loosen things up, loosen things up. There's a pattern there. And as we loosen things up when it comes to the commands of Scripture that we don't like or we feel uncomfortable with, whatever the worldview we're coming to with, what we end up doing is then wanting to tell other people to do the same thing. We say, yeah, that command, I mean it's not as important. These over here, yes, but that one, you can just dismiss it. Or don't take that so seriously. Yeah, there's other things here. Don't take it so seriously. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is, there's a real warning here. He's saying, if that's how you're approaching it, you're setting it aside. You're loosening it up. It's the same thing as you're setting it aside and you're leading other people astray. There is a great danger to this, this uh, idea. And so we need to hear it. Jesus is elevating it. We need to submit ourselves fully to God's word all the commands, all that he's calling us to be about and to do. The contrast to this is found in the, the, the next part of this verse. It says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, listen, don't loosen it up. Hold it up. Let this be the authority of your life. My word. In fact, when you follow it and you teach it to others, you will be seen as great in my kingdom. Is it okay to want to be great? You bet. Now, it's possible for many of us to, to want to be great in our own eyes, but what this passage is reminding us is that we need to be great in God's eyes. And how are we great in God's eyes? In Scripture, there's two ways, primarily, that, that, we're, that God measures greatness. It's by being a servant to all for the sake of Christ and to be highly responsive to God's Word in our life. And so he's saying, listen, you do this. You'll be seen as great in God's eyes. It's you're practicing and you're teaching God's word. You're holding it very highly and you're submitting yourself to who God is and what he's commanded. So this is the high view of scripture that he takes. But then he goes the shot. He gives the shocking statement in verse 20. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, they're with Jesus until this moment. And Jesus, the moment that Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody in the audience on that day in the Sermon on the Mount just lowered their heads. They're like, oh, there is no hope for me then. Because to be more righteous than the Pharisees, that's all they did. They're focused on being right with the law, following all the rules and do these things. And they were very serious about it. Everyone in the audience was like, oh, man, there's no hope for me then. Because the Pharisees were very serious. 
In fact, there's uh, at least seven div- different divisions of the Pharisees. And one of the divisions that I, I, I think is particularly interesting is the, the division of the, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Have you ever heard of the bruised and bleeding Pharisees? It's a division of Pharisees that were um, so serious and so concerned that they not look at a woman inappropriately that uh, if they saw a woman passing by when they were walking, they would close their eyes. So now you know why they're called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Because they'd be running into walls and they'd be running into poles. And that was their way of saying, we, we, we don't want to, you know, look at a, a woman inappropriately. Now, here's the thing. They can close their eyes, but their minds still work just fine, don't they? So it didn't really help at all. But you've got to give them credit for being so serious and trying so hard. And that's the, that's the case. And they, so when they think of the Pharisees, it's like, man, these guys are so far Ahead, And so there was, it was a moment of going, man, this is so hard. Now, this is again where we need to hear the reminder of Jesus earlier in this message of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's that sense of God, I, I, I can't. I'm spiritually broken. I'm bankrupt. That's the place that we can begin. God can say, okay, you recognize that. You get that. Now I can begin to work in your life. That's, that's the, the point here. So he's saying this to them. So then, um, then after saying uh, and really saying that, hey, I am uh, holding God's word highly, and he's at the same time challenging to have a great righteousness greater than the Pharisees, the question is, well, how do we apply this? What does that look like? And so Jesus says, I'm going to take this and apply it, and I'm going to apply it to Scripture. And so Jesus goes to uh, uh, the commands that are found in the Old Testament, and he goes to the Ten Commands, and he, he just focuses in here, in this passage, on the sixth command, which is, you shall not murder. And he says, okay, now let's put this to work. Let me show you what I'm talking about in terms of, of this high view and how it ought to apply in your life. And that's what we see in verse 21. It says this, you have heard, it, heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, you're hearing that and you're saying, okay, all right, good. I haven't murdered anybody recently, so I think I'm doing okay, right? So that's kind of maybe what you're thinking. And, um, and you're thinking, okay, I'm good. But then look at the next verse. The next verse is this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, this is a challenging verse, and we can't skip over it. And I don't want to skip over the first four words particularly. It says this in verse 21. But I tell you. This is, a, this is the, the audacity of Jesus because he just got done saying, you've heard God's word, the Bible, the law of Moses say this. And then he turns the very next verse and says, but I tell you, this is the audacity of Jesus. That he is, is saying, yeah, you've heard what God has said. Now, listen to me. Now, at this moment, you're either thinking he is either one of the most arrogant figures of history or he's God. See, he's either saying, yeah, God, this is what God's word says. Now listen to me. Yeah, you know, that's that, but now listen to me. Or this is Jesus saying, hey, listen, do not commit murder. Now, let me tell you what I really meant by that when I wrote it. Do you get that? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let me tell you what I meant because he, I am God. I wrote this. Now let me share with you what this really means and how this applies 
to your life. And he says, the, the, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So he says, again, the first verse, the verse 20, 21 was, if you commit murder, you will be subject to judgment. Now he jumps over and says, if you're angry, you'll be subject to judgment. You're like, whoa, Jesus, that's a pretty big jump, right? From murder to anger, that's a, that's a, that's a big jump because we do this, right? When we look at sins, we look at certain sins and we say, yeah, that's a really bad one. That sin over there, that's, that's bad. That's, you know, don't do that one really clearly, bad stuff. Um, murder, that's on that list, right? But then anger, we look at anger and we're like, yeah, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, it's just, it just happens, right? We're humans. It's, it's, maybe it's just a healthy response. It's just what happens. But Jesus is elevating it, this reality and saying, no, listen, I want you to take this seriously. And that's a challenge for us because we don't want to take anger in our lives that seriously. But in fact, when it comes to anger, we can be angry at someone and not even apologize to that person because we're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. We wouldn't say, um, I've murdered you in my heart when we're angry because that sounds really terrible, right? So we have much more pleasant euphemisms for anger. When it comes to anger, we say things like, I lost my temper. You know, I had a temper, and I was walking along one day, I just lost it. It's like, well, man, where did my temper go, right? So we have this kind of way of saying, I don't own it. It just got lost. And so it's not on me. It's just this thing that happens. We say things like, I just was blowing off some steam. You know, that concept comes from the, the old steam engine idea, right? Where the steam engine would be so pressurized by steam that you have to kind of blow off some of that steam so it doesn't explode. And we kind of took that. That sounds a nice phrase. I'm just venting. I just had to blow off a little bit of steam. Um, you know, if I didn't, I mean, I would explode. And you wouldn't want that, right? And so, uh, sorry, you were in the, the, the kind of the pathway of my blowing out steam. But it's natural. It's normal. I mean, I've got to do it. Right? So we kind of approach it that way. We, others, we say things like, man, that person really pushes my buttons. Have you ever heard that before? Ever said that? He pushes my buttons. She pushes my buttons. Those kids, my kids, they push my buttons. And when you have more kids, you have more buttons. <laughs> and they know how to push them or stomp on them, whatever it might be. And so when someone, you know, it's like, yeah, I got angry, but I have a button and you came up and pushed it. So it's your fault. See that? We don't want to take ownership of our anger. We're like, no, that's your problem. You did this to me. It's my button. You pushed it. And so that's why you got this response. And so Jesus is saying, listen, this is not something that we take lightly. He's saying, he puts, puts it up there with the same, same kind of like level. He's raising the bar. You're saying, man, this is hard. Yes, it is hard. He wants us to take this very seriously. Then he goes on to the next thing. He says this. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Now, you're thinking to yourself, great, I haven't said Raka recently, so I'm good, right? No, Raka is an Aramaic word, and it means um, airhead, basically, right? It means you're stupid, you're an idiot, that you look at somebody and you say, you're mentally inferior to me. And whether you say it out loud or you feel it in your heart, that's the concept there. Um, and then he says, if anyone says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. You fool is, is the Greek word moros. Can you translate that? 
Okay, yes, good, moron, nice. And so the rakha, the stupid, you're idiot, it's you're mentally inferior. Moros, moron, you're, you're morally inferior to me. And so there's a progression here of anger that Jesus is pointing out. I'll show it to you. Here's the progression. It begins with anger. That's a general sense of anger. Then there's a sense of, of rakha. That's you're mentally inferior to me. Then it goes deeper. It says, you fool, now you are morally inferior to me. You are corrupt. You're just terrible. That's the concept. That's the, the, the progression. Now, with the progression of anger, there's also a progression of danger with our anger. Um, and so let me show you what those are. It says this, but whoever is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That is kind of like a um, more of a, a personal or a setting or maybe a, a smaller town setting of judgment, uh, kind of a town court. And then again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is, is answerable to the court. And the court is the court of the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court. So it's gone from the town court to the Supreme Court. And of course, as you get up higher courts, of course, the the... <laughs> The consequences become more severe. And then it says, and anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. You're like, whoa, how did we get here? The word hell, fire of hell there is the word Gehenna. And it comes from the, the in, in Jerusalem, there was a, a part of the southern, southern side of Jerusalem where there was a valley, Valley of Hinnom. And they would throw their trash and their refuse over, refuse over that, that valley into the, over that hill into the valley. And there was a fire down there. It was constantly burning all the trash. It was sort of this picture of like um, fire, suffering, burning. It was a terrible thing. And so this is where Jesus is going. Like, wow, that's, that's, that's a lot. And Jesus is wanting to us to get that he's taking this very seriously. Now, I will say one very important thing when it comes to anger, the anger in and of itself is not a sin. If, if that was, then God would have sinned because God um, has anger. But the question is, what do we do with that anger? And what he's talking about here is he's talking about a focused, um, continual uh, carrying on of anger. It's, a, it's holding on to a grudge. It's looking at someone and saying, I am better than you. It's looking at them and saying, you're an idiot. Feeling in your heart or saying, yeah, you're just... Man, you're beyond help. You're a moron. You're, you're morally corrupt, and you're just categorizing them. That's what he's getting at here. And he's, he's taking it very seriously. And again, you're saying, well, wait a minute. You're talking about murder. Now you're talking about anger. You're taking this up a level, and that's exactly it. There is what we call the letter of the law and then the spirit of the law. And Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want you to set the bar so low. See, murder, do not commit murder. That's like the b- lowest bar you can get, right? That's like, okay, we can all agree that's probably not a good thing. Let's not commit murder. That's like there. But it's easy then for us to say, well, great, check that off the list. Didn't do that one. But then there's this big gap, isn't there, between the people that we're angry with, we're frustrated with. There's this big gap. There's the letter of law and the spirit of law. Just picture this. You're um, at work and you're hearing from the weatherman, the person that there's going to be a storm, that, you know, it's cold, the sleet is coming, it's going to hail, it's going to, whatever, freezing rain. And so you're like, I got to get home. And so you're driving home early. And as you're driving home, it's, yeah, it's getting slushy, it's bad, the rain's coming down, it's starting to freeze on your windshield. And so you're like, I got to get home soon. And as you're driving home through your little windshield, it's all kind of frozen. You see um, there's a car on the side of the road. And by that car, there's a, a woman and she's pregnant, um, like, like nine and a half months pregnant. I mean, like just really pregnant. She's there. And, 
She's got on one hip, you know, she's got her toddler. On the other hand, she's got a, a car jack and she's trying to jack up that car because she's, she's got a flat tire. And you're driving by and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I don't want to break the law, so I'm not going to run her over. I'm just going to keep going. And that's good because I'm not breaking the law. I'm just going to go by. I'm not going to hit her. I'm just going to keep going. You're like, so you feel pretty good about yourself, right? No. You know, you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not going to be, you know, I could go by and that'd be a perfect opportunity to like just get a little close to that car, put up some nice like slush right on that person hanging there. But I'm not going to do that. Look, I can feel pretty good about myself, can't I? Because I didn't do that. I'm just going to drive on by and just not do those things. Now, most of us would look and think about that and say, that's pathetic, right? I mean, how, how, talk about set the bar low. That's what we're doing when we're saying, that's the checklist, that's the checklist. In fact, Jesus is saying, I want you to raise it. In terms of application of what I'm saying, I want you to go further, to fill that space between the low bar to a much higher standard. You have to fill that space with love. You have to fill that space with a responsiveness to God because of who he is and what he has done for us. And that's the challenge. That's what he's saying here. So the question then is, okay, if we're supposed to take this to a higher level, we're to, to, held to a higher standard, and this is what Jesus is calling to, what does that look like? And that's where the next verse is very helpful. He, he, in the next verse, it says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Let me read the next part, and then we'll come back to this. The next part, something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, go back to the, the, the previous verse. Therefore, this is the application. He's talking about now a setting. It's a worship setting. So that is you're now with fellow believers or in your own family. It's a tight-knit, you know, this is a close uh, brothers and sisters scenario. And he's using an example of, a, of a, a church scenario, a worship scenario. He's saying, if you're there and you're worshiping at the altar and there remember that someone has something against you, now go and be reconciled to them. Now, the word something against you is the word um, T, T-I in Greek. And that means anything. So if they have something that is any little thing against you, then go. Now, there is moments when I would love to edit the Bible. And this is one of those moments that I'd be like, I'd like to just take this little part out. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is saying, no, if there's someone who has something against you, any little thing against you, go be reconciled to them. Now, here's the interesting curveball that Jesus throws at us too. Because in this scenario, Jesus is saying, um, it's not just that you're worshiping and you realize, oh, I've got something against that person. I should probably forgive him. But it's at this moment that Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You're there worshiping and you realize that someone has something against you. Then you're to be reconciled to them. You're like, ooh, that's tough. Because all of us could probably think of somebody that's got something against us. Not that they're right, but Jesus doesn't give that as a condition in this command. Well, you know, they started it, not me. Well, again, God does not give that as a condition either for whether or not we reach out and show reconciliation. See, because if it was who started it in terms of reconciliation, then God would have never sent Jesus. Because he didn't start it. We did. But reconciliation means I'm going to finish it. And that's what God does for us. So this is the challenge. 
This is the spot. And he says this. If, you have so, if someone, has, a brother or sister has something against you, next, next verse, sorry, then leave your gift there in front of the altar and first. The emphasis here is first. This is a priority. That's the main, the, the thrust of it. Jesus is saying, first, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And this would have been the opposite of what the Pharisees would have said. Okay, God first, put him first, worship, then go deal with the stuff outside, those relationships. You know, Jesus is saying, no, 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 you need to prioritize it. You go first. You come to church and you're worshiping and you're singing songs or you're giving your tithe or you're offering and you realize and you remember, I got into a fight on my way to church today. It's that moment that you grab your mate's hand, you go out and you say, we need to get, we need to get right. And then come back in and you worship. That's the priority that Jesus is making. It's a high call. It's a high standard. And so that's what he's saying here um, in this passage. And he says, first and go be reconciled to them. That word reconcile is important. It simply means to um, really to turn around. To be reconciled to someone means you're turning towards them. Then you're, you're saying, hey, will you turn towards me? And it's not that you fix it, not that you solve it, but that you're simply willing to turn towards them and invite them to turn towards you. That's the, that's the concept here. Now, you're saying, well, the person that I'm thinking about that comes to my mind and the circumstance that I'm dealing with, it's not somebody in the church, it's not somebody here, um, but it's somebody outside of the church. It's somebody, you know, beyond that. So this is where Jesus goes next. He says, well, okay, maybe in a worship setting, but also could just be in the world. And so in verse 25, he says this, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. So he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. Now your adversary could be somebody out in the world um, that you're engaged with through business or through um, different connections in your neighborhood or whatever it might be. But it also, by the way, an adversary could still be a Christian brother. It could be a family member. It could be someone that you know well. They have just now come, become more adversarial. And that's, that's the, the point here. It says, when you're, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court and do it while you're together on the way. So he said, do it. Don't delay while you're on your way. Make, make amends, work on it. That's what he's saying because if you don't, here's what the next part of the, this verse says. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. So he's saying, listen, if you don't act, if you don't do it quickly, it will escalate. And you've all been there before where you've had a circumstance and you sit on it, you don't deal with it, and it escalates and it escalates and it escalates, and that's the point. There's a, there's a kind of an escalation that goes on, and then in verse, that final verse, it says this, um, truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. That is, there's a, a compound interest that takes place if we don't deal with those relationships. This is what Jesus is pressing us towards, and it is a real challenge. And I know that you're thinking to yourself, okay, I know I need to go make this a priority and I need to go quickly. That's what Jesus is saying. But um, the, the person I'm, I'm ta- thinking about, um, the, the situation that's going on in my mind, um, it just, I just can't do it. I mean, it's, it's, and of course, I get it. You know, you have a different circumstance. Your circumstances are different. And of course, it, it, it wouldn't work. You know, you're thinking, well, I, you know, I would like to, you know, follow what God's saying, Jesus is saying here, but it just, you know, it's, it's complicated, it's challenging, and I, yeah, for sure, I understand. You've got your challenging things, I've got my challenging things. In fact, when it comes to reconciliation, I've got a pretty good list of reasons why um, it won't work. 
a pretty good list of reasons why I shouldn't do it. And um, what I'd like to do is just share with you some of the things on my list. And maybe, maybe as you look at them, there's some things that you might say, yeah, that could be on my list too. So let me just show you some of the things that are on my list, objections, challenges, when it comes to um, reconciling. And maybe you can relate. First one is this. First one is it won't work. It won't work. This is the point where we just say, you know, in my scenario, I mean, he'll never change or she will never change. But notice, Jesus does not say, well, if they'll never change, then don't do it. That is not a condition that he puts in terms of what it means to be reconciled and to seek reconciliation. That's not it. But we, we, we want to sometimes hold on to that as one of our reject, uh, objections. But Jesus says, go. He doesn't give us all the different um, uh, disclaimers, all these different things. He just simply says, go. So if Jesus says, go, we better go. Here's another one. It's too late. This is a popular one. Um, it's too late. And yes, it is late. But it will get later. So Jesus says, listen, before it gets worse, before it goes, goes farther, before it becomes more damaging, before there's that compound interest, go now. Address it. Deal with the person. Uh, you know, seek reconciliation. Here's a third one. It won't make any difference. It won't make any difference. Of course, this idea is that, you know, um, it's already set. The divorce is final. So it won't make any difference what I do. And in some ways, maybe you're right. It may not make a difference to the person that you're trying to reconcile with, but it will make a difference for you because you're following God's commands. You're following him. This is the difference that he's calling us to. Then the fourth one is this. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And the, to that I ask then, why are you thinking about it right now? Why are you thinking about a person or a circumstance right now if it's not a big deal? See, all of us would like to ignore certain things and certain people. Like we, as much as we try to mentally, I'm not going to think about him. I'm not going to think about her. I'm not going to think about that situation. How come it keeps popping back up? Well, maybe it's a bigger deal than you think. And Jesus is simply saying, hey, you need to address it. We like to push it down like a, you know, like a mattress, but it, the spring's blowing back up, right? So we got to go, okay, well, maybe there's something here that I need to respond to and listen. And I know it's hard. And I know that you got your list. I've got mine. I've just shared it with you. And there's other lists that we can probably say, well, it's complicated and they're not around and there's lots of different reasons, but Jesus is saying we need to go. It's a priority and we need to do it quickly. So what does that rec really reconciliation, real reconciliation look like? Let me give you a couple of things. Um, when it comes to real reconciliation, the first thing that I want you to see is this, that reconciliation is about small things. In this passage, Jesus says, if there's someone who has something against you, that is any little thing against you. So it's, it's small things. And so sometimes we have to address small things because if we don't address small things, they can become big things. And so we need to address the small things. And he says, do it uh, before it gets bigger. Then the second one is this. Reconciliation is about immediate action. It's not something that you think about doing. You're like, that would be nice to do someday. I'll try to schedule that later, maybe like much later, like years later. And Jesus is saying now, go, hurry, quickly. The the, it's a priority. And you're like, Jesus, this is hard, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, make it a priority. He's saying, make it an action, an immediate action. Here's the third one. 
Reconciliation is taking the first step. Reconciliation is taking the first step. That's what God did towards us. He took the first step. And so he's saying, you need to take the first step. Now, it may be the final step, but he's still calling us to make that first step. That's what he's challenging us to do. Here's the fourth one. Reconciliation is not always successful. Reconciliation is not always successful. And I wish that wasn't the case, but it is true. At times, reconciliation is not always successful. In fact, in Romans 12, 18, it says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Now, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Now, the reality is sometimes it's not possible. We want to extend peace. It's smart. We've tried, and it doesn't, some people just will not respond to it. And that's the reality. But the, I know that for some of us, that's hard. And we go, well, man, why even try if that's an option? It won't work. Well, now you know how God feels because he's been offering reconciliation forever, but we can still avoid it. And so we understand that tension when we recognize who God is and what he has been offering to us. And the fifth one really is, is about God and us. The fifth thing is this, that reconciliation is about what God does with us. Reconciliation is about what God does with us. And to me, this is so important because reconciliation um, is modeled for us by Jesus. It's what he has done for us. Um, he's turned himself towards us and invites us to turn to him. It's the same thing that he's calling us to do towards others. But it's because of Jesus that we can find forgiveness. We can find hope. We can find restoration. We can find um, a real relationship with him. It's all because of Jesus and what he has offered to us. And if you're here and you've never said, God, I need to turn to you, I invite you to consider him. He's got his arms open for you. See, reconciliation, like I told you, is this concept of turning around. And oftentimes when we're in conflict with someone, um, someone has something against us, our back is turned and their back is against ours. And Jesus is saying simply reconcile to them. That is turn around. You may not fix it, solve it, but turn around and invite them to turn around to you. That's what he's calling us to. But when to our relationship with God, God's already turned towards us. He's already turned towards us. He's just inviting us to turn to him. He's already there. And we know that because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He took the first step. He took action. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We could be set free. We could enter and embrace a relationship with him. And again, I beg you to consider if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, to turn. he wants to offer you forgiveness, life, and leadership. He wants to care for you. Turn to him. But if you have turned to him, Jesus is simply saying, I want you to do that for others as well. I want you to turn to those who are, have something against you, those who have wronged you, those in those relationships where there's conflict. Now, if you're like me and you're hearing this passage you're absolutely crushed because this is so hard to do, isn't it? If you're here and you're saying, I just can't do it, well, you're in the right place. Listen to word, the words of Jesus again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's when we recognize, I can't. I'm spiritually bankrupt, God. I cannot do this, that we're in the right place. 
Because God says, okay, now turn to me because I can help you. That's the whole idea. This passage presses us down hard, doesn't it? But at the same time, it presses us to Jesus. We say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need your strength. And listen, when God commands us to follow, he's also making it, he'll make it possible for us to follow. And if you're a child of God, guess what? He's given you the spirit of God to enable you to follow him. That is his children, we can call out to him and we can experience his strength to do what he is calling us to do. So let's take a moment and let's call out to him together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your, your grace and your mercy in our life. We're thankful for the fact that, Lord, you're a God who is a reconciling God. That, Lord, we, we started things and you finished things. That when we sinned and rebelled, we ran the opposite direction. You turned towards us and you sent your son, Jesus, so that we could find healing and hope. And God, we're grateful for that. So Lord, help us to be responsive to you, to trust you. And in the hundreds of circumstances that all of us are working through, and just even throughout this room and beyond, Lord, there's circumstances, there's relationships, there's things that are coming to our mind. Lord God, we come to you and we ask for your help so that we can follow you fully and faithfully, that you would strengthen us, that we would honor you, that you would work in us and do a work through us. God, we pray this together in your name. Amen.